robots, and welcome to today's episode of Remedial Studies. Today we're discussing the always timely and thought-provoking and often challenged uh, novel by Madeline Liangle, A Wrinkle in Time. We're very excited to bring this to you today because um, this is one of the books, I know you've talked about this to me a couple of times over the course of our friendship, Hannah. It was uh, Baby's First Science Fiction. Yeah, it's somewhere, it's all fuzzy now, but it's something like this, and then shortly thereafter Asimov, or they came about the same time, or I don't know, but very, very early in my development at becoming a human person. Yeah, and uh, rereading it like I did the past week, it's been very fun to revisit, because I read it very, very, very young. And it's been nice to revisit it as an adult because I, as in many things, I have very different experiences and opinions now that I'm 25 versus when I was, say, 12. Yeah, 9, 9 10, 11, 12, somewhere, somewhere pre-puberty. Yeah. I want to say I read it when I was 12. I want to say I read it around Meg's age in the book. Yeah. Yeah, I think that was important for me that... Meg was one of the most relatable characters. I've been reading a lot of Judy Bloom at this age, too. So that should give mm-hmm. you uh, a good idea of what kind of headspace I was in. An OG of children's literature, if ever there was one. Yeah, I was in my Are You There, God? It's Me, Margaret face and just trying yes. to figure out <laughs> my own body and boys and... And trying to be a human person because it's, I don't know if people, if you become fully, uh, I feel like that's something that takes your whole life to be, now that I'm older. I don't, I, yeah, I don't know if I've ever become a full human person. <laughs> like, I, it's one of those things where, do you ever finish turning that corner? <laughs> but I definitely think there's things, Things like A Wrinkle in Time, and I know for me, like, and for a lot of people our age, like, Harry Potter was another one of them. Like, a lot of children's lit, not even just literature, but just, like, the, like, like stories that you find at that age can really help you figure out that kind of stuff. Like, for me, the th- it was, like, for me, it was Harry Potter in a series of unfortunate events had a really far-reaching effect on me, which if uh, for the five people who listen to the show who know me in real life, that's not a surprise. I wanted to kind of start there, if you will. If you want to give like a brief synopsis, there's no way we're going to be brief, though, if we try to give a synopsis of the book. It's it's short, but a lot of stuff happens. Yeah, I can, I can try. Uh, basically, it's about a family, the Murrays. There's Meg, who is the daughter, who's about 12, and as what one might call a difficult child, and she is going through that thing that all 12-year-old girls go through, where they do not like themselves, they do not like other people, and they do not understand why the entire world hates them. I feel like that's a universal experience It absolutely for a 12-year-old is. girl. She has a little brother, Charles Wallace, who is some kind of X-Men mutant, uh, JK, but not JK. Yeah, not really not JK. Cause, he has some oof. sympathetic, like, mind powers. Yeah, I, I think he's, it's weird because it's like, it's, it's like he's psychic and, but in like, not just the telepathy way. Like you said, it's kind of, it's a kind of empathy. Mm-hmm. Which is, yes. I feel almost scarier. <laughs> uh, yeah. Yeah, I guess so. Because he can, like, read people, like, see what they're all about. And I feel like my yeah. reading's somehow less invasive. Regardless. Regardless. They have brothers that are twins who are not really heavily featured in this book. They get their own book, which is very good. Mm-hmm. They get zapped back to the Bible, t- like, Genesis times in many waters. But regardless, <laughs> uh, their parents are scientists, super smart, brilliant scientists. Their dad is working for the government, and he disappears while doing government work, and they're not sure uh, when he's coming back. And he's been gone for a couple of years, at least, uh, at the opening of the book. Uh, Meg's having problems in school. Charles Wallace is about to start school, and he's very weird, so they're all very nervous. Um, And so at this kind of 
you know, in between time in their lives, uh, these mysterious bag ladies show up and basically <laughs> say, I mean, that's what they're, I mean, that the is term what they bag are. lady is not used, but they are, in fact, like what you think a bag lady looks like. And all due respect to bag ladies, I'm not, <sighs> they're like dressed in a million coats and scarves and they look like they're old and they're hunched over and. You know, they're not the, they are not the, anything like the uh, Ava DuVernay's versions at all. Yeah, they they are, they are no Oprah. <laughs> no, they, they are not glamorous or pretty or anything like that. Uh, they are little ladies who are dressed very weird and in lots of layers. Yes. I assume because space is very cold. Yeah. However, they basically uh, end up being interred, intrads. Extra, extra dimensional. I'm trying to find a good prefix for dimensional. I'm going to say they're extra dimensional beings, even though that's probably wrong. Uh, They're extra dimensional beings who basically come to the children and say, okay, uh, your father tethered, which is kind of a wormhole, kind of not. It's basically you can fold space time so that instead of traveling the length of the fold, you just travel between the two points of the fabric or space-time where you've made them touch. So it's instantaneous. Anyway, I have a little diagram in my edition of the book, and that's really because I can't picture things in my head. So I'm probably not explaining this well. It's As as I understand it, it is a form of instantaneous travel in time and space. Yes. And the and is very important. Yes. In that sentence. Yes. So... Uh, they're like, okay, so we're gonna zap you to your dad. They have some, they visit a couple of places, uh, learn about the great evil that's overtaking the universe. They have to go to a planet that's been overtaken by the evil to rescue their father. And they get there, and it's sort of like a totalitarian, gross thing where everybody has to be exactly the same and do paperwork all of the time and they have to do it perfectly or they get reconditioned which is basically they get electrocuted not electrocuted they get shocked until Mm -hmm. they can behave uh and it turns out that everyone is being controlled by a disembodied brain on a pedestal in classic sci-fi fashion and Mm -hmm. uh it's an evil brain and it tries to take over everybody's mind and it gets charles wallace but meg finds her father and then this whole time calvin who is like a guy that goes to the same school as meg who's a couple years older than her so he's 14 or something has been tagging along and he's just like a genuinely nice guy yeah not not like capital n capital g like a legitimately nice guy yeah he's just a good dude who's who's there because the universe has decided that he's going to get a nice new family because his family's kind of cruddy. So that that book is the start of him basically becoming the Murray's additional child. And he and Meg eventually get married uh, in later Yeah, and they books. have like a small army of children, don't they? Yes. And there, there are more books about the Murray's, uh, which makes why we were so confused about the number of books in this series. This is a trilogy it's the first book in a trilogy, but there's actually nine books about the Murrays or something. I thought it was the first book in a quintet because I think the way it's marketed, at least that, that, oh, that group of five. Okay, so. It's like the time quintet or something. Okay, so I have, there's the Wrinkle in Time trilogy, which is a part of the, you are correct. It is a part of the time quintet. It is part of a quintet. <laughs> it's a trilogy that's also a part of a quintet. But then there are not five books about the Murray O'Keefe's, but eight books about the Murray O'Keefe's. That's a lot of books. So that's why we've been so confused about the number of books in this series, because it's both a trilogy and part of the quintet, but there are eight total books. Anyway, structural questions aside, their dad ends up tethering Meg and Calvin off of the planet to a nearby planet. Where they regroup and they meet some cool aliens and then the misses come back, the extra dimensional beings, and Meg has to go get Charles Wallace off of the evil planet all by herself. No one else can go with her. Mm-hmm. And that's important. 
uh, because she doesn't really believe in herself or want to take responsibility for it, and she wants her dad to fix everything. Because when you're 12, you know, I feel like it's natural to be like, the adults should fix this. Yeah, because she even talks about that when, when she talks with her dad before she leaves to go get her brother is she's like, you know, a big part of the reason I came to save you is because I wanted you to fix everything. Yeah, and, you know, realizing that adults are fallible human people as a child, I think that was a big thing. (laughs) Yeah, I I think it it reminded me of, I want to say it's from The Ocean at the End of the Lane, that quote from Neil Gaiman where it's like, there's no grown-ups anywhere, we're just kids who are trying their best (laughs) and who are in grown-up costumes and no one really knows what they're doing they're just doing their best and trying to get through and for some reason that thought especially i think when i first read this book and then when i read ocean at the end of the lane i think i was around 18 i like i might know might have been before after that yeah i don't think it came out until i was working at that job so that would put it after 18 but very early 20s yeah early 20s which which is another speaking of transitional times (laughs) i still feel like i'm in a weird transitional period in my life where having that thought of like adults can't fix everything because they're trying their best just the same as you and they're trying to figure out how to be how to be people is a scary and comforting thought because i i think for me at least i want to (laughs) believe That I will level up enough as an adult to feel like I have complete control over my life. And I think I've realized that that finish line, and even if it's just in your own head, is continuously moving. So, like, you hit one mark, and then it's like, ooh, now I gotta go on to the next one, and the next one, and the next one. And the fact that, like, some for some people that, like, never stops is, again, like, kind of comforting and scary. A thing that I wanted to talk about, because it is something that I saw as very timely. This is something that happens sometimes when you read older books. And that can that can mean a lot of different things depending on how old you're talking. Like this book was first published in 1962. The big thing in the big philosophical, mental and emotional f- final battle between Meg and it, or the it, excuse me, the brain that controls the planet that Charles Wallace is trapped on is them equating something being like something to those two things being equal and there's the line that she has where like and equal are never this are almost never the same thing which was obviously a very timely statement in the 60s with the civil rights era yeah and the cold war Uh uh-huh and coming into a culture where that was a big question like can things that are Uh, I mean, obviously, the parlance in American legal history was separate but equal. Those two things were found to be sort of incongruous. The whole concept of what does equality look like and how does that affect how we approach society? Because to me, the whole thing behind the it being a disembodied brain, completely separate from all other organs, is is Madeline Lee Engel, whether she means to or not, which, of course, blanket disclaimer for this show, we don't really care about whether people mean things because you can say something without meaning it. <laughs> you know? Yes. The whole thing about it being a disembodied brain and how Meg's ultimate weapon against the it is that she loves her brother. Yes. Is that a brain separate and, and by, by extension, intelligence even supreme intelligence like the it displays when separated from the heart and the soul and the rest of the body is meaningless and it is not putting intellectualism over empathy and over compassion will never lead to the ideal society that it looks like on paper yeah and i think that kind of leads into another thing that we felt that we had to talk about which is something i think we both missed as kids that on rereading uh became very obvious which is that this is a book that very much has a lot of christian uh ideology and ideas in it Mm -hmm. 
something we were talking about in our uh, production meeting is the idea that that's something that I was really glad that this was my first science fiction experience or one of the first science fiction experiences I had is because it's not and it's not a book in which faith is made that faith is brought low mm-hmm. <laughs> in favor of of science or logic that it's faith is not looked at as illogical or incompatible with science yes a line that pertains to that that i read that really resonated with me was i believe i believe it, it, it was one of the mrs w's said when it is it is revealed that they are angels essentially they were stars and they gave up that part of their existence so that they could help save the world from the darkness that's trying to take it over it's in very grand both biblical and science fiction history (laughs) but they say you know a thing doesn't require you to understand it for it to be yes and that's something i think you can apply to both faith and science there are a great many scientific phenomena in the world that i don't understand those things do not rely on my understanding them to be true right and i think the same thing could be said of a set of many things to do with faith as well. I'm not a particularly spiritual or, or faith person, but I think that that kind of attitude where science and faith can coexist peacefully mm-hmm. with one another is very important because I find I have seen so often in my life coming from a rural small town where... I mean, all the jobs are plant jobs, and there's this sort of, and it's very Christian and very, very white, I will say. Mm -hmm. And then to have the relationship between faith and between science and education in general be, be somewhat combative. Yes, I know what you're talking about. So I think this is a much healthier attitude where they can exist and nobody has to be any better than anybody else. And I also do not like smug atheists. <laughs> no. Again, we talked about this in the in the production meeting of people who utilize faith or lack thereof to feel smug and like you're smarter or better than someone else. That's dumb. Yeah. Don't do it. Like you're a shitty person if you do that. I think anytime you feel better about yourself because you see someone else is lacking something i feel like you need to take some steps back and examine what exactly is going on like that's true of not just faith and logic but also i don't know any other characteristics i think in this book madeline the angle does a good job of showing that a lot of the aims of faith and science are very similar yes it is a search for understanding and a search to find meaning and I don't want to say order because I don't think that's necessarily true, but it, it is a way to identify with and interact with the universe around you. Yeah, and both are a way to make things better. Mm-hmm. Ultimately, they should be. Yeah, we, we talk about this all the time. We're all just a bunch of people clinging to the skin of a rock hurtling through space. We, You might as well just give it a shot at trying to make things better, even if it's only for yourself. Yeah. We're a more or less random assemblage of matter when you get right down to the bare bones of it. Yeah. we Whatever meaning you want to assign to it is fine. Yeah, as long as it's not hurting anybody. Yeah, I guess that's the thing. What's the other thing I really wanted to talk about with Wrinkle in Time? Oh, can I talk about for just a minute how reading Meg at 12 and reading Meg at 26. Can I talk about that Ooh, for a yes, second? Please. So at 12, I super, like, Meg could have been me, only only not really. The thing about Meg that was me at 12 was that self-loathing and that feeling that even though you are a 12-year-old girl and obviously not, like, you're totally normal, you're totally average 12-year-old girl. And I don't know, maybe this isn't a universal experience, but I feel like from the ages of 12 
to like 16, most girls are convinced that there's something fundamentally wrong with them. Yeah. I don't know if that's puberty. I don't know if that's society. I don't know if it's some combination of see all of the above. But like that's the thing about Meg is that Meg at one point, she's like, I, I'm not good at school. I am so rough. I'm ugly. I'm a monster. Like, why can't I just be like this? Why is why is everything why is everything against me? I feel like at 12, 12 to 16, man, that's the gospel truth. You don't understand your feelings. You don't understand what's happening to your body. You just want a nice boy to pay attention to you, but they won't. No, they won't. They never do. <laughs> you feel ugly. Like, I got my hair was cut real short probably the time that I was reading this and everyone was really mean to me and I had just gotten glasses. That time in my life, and I really sympathized with everything that makes said. And then now reading at 26... I cringe a little bit because I no longer hate myself that much. <laughs> and I wish at 12 that I hadn't been so hard on myself. Yeah. And that I hadn't been so wanting other people's approval and to be a certain way so much. But I mean, that's the wisdom. I don't know if it's truly wisdom, but that's the perspective that comes after more than a decade, I guess, is that. You just want to give 12-year-old you a dang hug because it didn't have to be that hard. But it did have to be that hard. Yeah. So it's hard for me to read Meg now because it just like, it just, you're so much better than what you think you are. And I know that she kind of gets there by the end of the book. But I think the thing for me is like Calvin's role, even though he's a really, an actually nice guy and a good dude, is mm -hmm. that it's sort of like, a boy paid attention to Meg, and now she feels better about herself. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I kind of got that in the book. I wasn't really paying attention to it. Uh, maybe because I knew that they got married. So, like, that development didn't really surprise me. I'm like, yes. oh, they are holding hands and kissing now, and they're like, oh, I finally found this person. And, like, uh, like that didn't bother me so much. Yeah, but they're 12 and 14. They're 12 and 14. So I, I, I can definitely see how that's, like, iffy. Yeah. Not a deal breaker, but iffy. Yes. Rereading it at 25 was a lot. Um, I don't remember a whole heck of a lot of what I thought of it when I was that young, because I don't remember. I did not remember as, as much of this book as I thought I did. I remembered the main plot points. I remembered most of the characters, but a lot of like the actual physics of it kind of, my brain just did not pick up. Which is funny, because that was the thing that I really fixated on mm -hmm. as a kid was the Tesseract and the space-time physics stuff. Yeah, my big thing was always it. That <laughs> terrified me. And the whole idea of that planet, which I think we've talked about this before. I always, when I was reading the book, I always saw it as sort of grayscale black and white. Right. And they would be the only things in color. And you know, it's not written that way. No, it's not. I was checking. I was like, I remember this because we were both talking. We remember it in grayscale. Mm -hmm. And that is something that we retconned in there and is not canon. No, it's not. I think it might, it might have just been like a reaction to the complete lack of an emotion that isn't rooted in fear. Yeah. Because there are things in the book like they, they speak with people who live on this planet and... There is no, everything is just anxiety and fear. The concept of normalization in this book was real, real heavy. And the idea of having to, that the way to equality is to abide by a standard status quo. Yes. Which, spoiler alert, is not true. No. Being the same is ultimately not the solution. And it doesn't make, life on what is this planet called i always forget camatots camazots camazots <laughs> thank you it doesn't make life on camazots any better because uh, the way the the sameness is demonstrated on camazots is even like it's in the trailer for the movie and it's the scene from the book that stuck with me the longest was when they show up and they go to this like suburb and all of the kids are outside and they're bouncing their balls in unison 
and like the moms come out and they're like they say something like hi honey it's time to come home and they say it with the same inflection at the same time and it's just creepy it's so i think the reason it's creepy is because it is inherently artificial yes and i think that's really what i took away from why that kind of society cannot work because it isn't natural for people to live like that and for people to behave like that we're not all supposed to be the same and it's probably healthier that healthier that we're not exactly it's so weird that we remembered it in black and gray uh and then the movie is this a good time to talk about the movie the movie that just came out which full disclosure listeners i have not seen yet yeah i will be repping on the movie so some spoilers i don't know because it is it is its own separate thing from the book they drop some things that i didn't expect them to drop and reassign some meaning. It was a beautiful movie. And like I'm crying. My boyfriend super liked it. So it was a crowd pleaser. We both felt kind of rejuvenated at the end of the movie. Because it was really about like the power of accepting yourself and your flaws. And like I think the message is still ultimately the same. The greatest thing that you can do is love other people. Yeah. And that's the way that you find meaning and that you beat back the darkness is to love everybody even like the neighbor girl who's bullying you at school that's a fundamentally like that's a real christian ideology right there if ever Mm -hmm. ever there was one right is to love people even if you think they don't deserve it yeah it's also something uh, a lot of christians tend to forget (laughs) is a thing that jesus Uh. said with his words um (laughs) I don't know. I guess it's that people don't necessarily deserve love. It's just that you should love them regardless. And obviously, like, that's a really hard thing to do as a person. Yeah. My parents and I don't go to church anymore, but we used to go to an Episcopalian church with a super cool pastor that I still follow on Facebook. And, like, that was her big thing that she always kind of brought home, especially around, like, major holidays, is, like, the responsibility is not on other people to earn your compassion and your empathy. It's on you to find that in yourself. And that's like, not an idea that that's exclusive to faith, of course, but that is something that is kind of a cornerstone of a lot of different ideologies, is that you love thy neighbor, treat people the way you would want to be treated, beat back the darkness... And a lot of that comes from things that are inherently, you know, it's hard. <laughs> it's a hard thing to do. We, we've said before, we, as far as the social totem pole goes, being fairly well-off white women, we're pretty close to the top. So I can't imagine how hard it must be for other people because that is not an experience. I can sympathize with it, but I cannot empathize with it because it is not something that I will ever experience. I, I think it, it it's possible for that message to get kind of twisted. Oh, yeah. This is also very timely. But whenever anything... I've been just real frustrated with my Facebook feed lately. I'll be real, guys. <laughs> but it's it's been really frustrating to see how divisive some major events in America have been to some people. Yeah. Obviously, the lot, the big conversation right now is gun control and how we deal with that and how do we mm. deal with America's kind of lo- love affair with guns and things like that, because there is one. It's like people want to put the onus of acceptance and compassion on the people who are being pushed down. Yeah. Obviously, it's not one-to-one, but it, it reminds me of a lot of the arguments people make particularly for people of color and especially i think we can make this assumption for black people for things like black lives matter where it's like oh well you need to be compassionate and you need to be nice and you need to do all this stuff otherwise why well, don't you expect people to be racist to you and the thing is that's bullshit oh yeah your worth as a person should not be determined by how nice you are to people who have made up their mind about whether you're a person or not. I, I think it, it's it's important to make the distinction, and I don't really know if this is in the book, but I, I think it is something you could take out of it, 
of knowing where it's almost better for yourself to understand, even if you put all that compassion and that love and that empathy out into the world, there's some people it's never going to touch and who will never accept it because of a myriad of reasons. And that sometimes it's just better to accept that and to walk away. Yeah, no, I agree. I'm more thinking when I talk about the greatest thing that you can do is love other people is I'm not talking about oppressed people need to love their oppressors, which I think is the line that we're trying to like demarcate. Yeah. Because obviously the people of Kamatats, Kamazats, Kamazats, that place, they did not love the it. No. I think it's about choosing to be empathetic and to give people the benefit of the doubt. I guess a lot of what I had, what I thought about A Wrinkle in Time and a lot of what I took out of it is really, it really does go down. And this is faith-based. It can also be science-based of that love is the greatest power in the universe. And that is demonstrated not just by the humans in the book, but by the Mrs. W's, the beasts that they find on that one weird planet with no... There's no light, right? So there's light, but the beasts are sightless. Yeah, they're sightless. They're blind. Is there a difference between sightless and blind? I don't know. It's probably semantics. Yeah, maybe blindness is like you have the capability. You're, you have the organs that have the capability of seeing, but you can't. So sightless, they, they, there is no concept of sight in yes. biology or culture in this society. And there was a scene that really kind of got to me where she tries to explain what seeing is to Ant Beast. And it's like that whole concept because there's the whole thing that we talk about, especially now that we've been on a rampage of finding new exoplanets and all this other stuff is, uh, and we talked about this when we had brunch last week, of the problem of communication across the universe and how like you uh we're talking about the idea that like the only way we can really meaningfully uh communicate with alien life is through like math oh yeah i totally ripped that off of neil stephenson stephenson regardless see i I, I say stephenson he doesn't listen to this podcast so he's not here to defend himself (laughs) But, but um that idea and how like how do you you can explain things in math but in that conversation, trying to specifically explain the sensation of something and how something feels, how that, like, it's almost, like, you can never really get it across. And the weird thing is, I don't feel that way about aliens all the time. I feel that way about people some of the time. <laughs> and I think this is why Charles Wallace freaks me out as much as he does. And this could tie into being a preteen girl and, like, nobody really knows what the fuck is going on with you and you sure as hell don't. <laughs> is feeling like you will never be able to fully express what is inside you to another living thing and how alienating that can be and how that can come out in anger and sadness, especially when you're that age. Because I know I felt that way when I was that age. I was a pretty well-adjusted middle schooler, but like... Yeah, same. It's a lot. I feel that way sometimes now. Like, yes. when I try to express an emotion to another person, like, like the words won't come out. And that was something that I saw some of in Meg and a lot of in, in, in Rachel is <laughs> that feeling like you don't, that you are a fundamental thing that cannot be understood by yourself or by others. And mm-hmm. that's a horrible feeling to have. And I think everybody feels that way sometimes. Yeah, I'd say that's probably a universal feeling. I mean, some people probably feel that way more than others, but I I think everybody goes through that at least a little bit sometimes. Yeah. Like, my mom and I had this conversation, this was a while ago, as uh, I've talked about on this podcast before, I have a wonderful cocktail of mental illnesses. Thank you, genetics. God nerfed me. That's what what I've been saying lately. (laughs) God nerfed me. Otherwise, I would have bested him in single combat by now. A thing that I learned recently is that ADD and ADHD presents itself very differently in girls than it does in boys. And it was like, looking back on it, I was like, hmm, that sounds a lot like me. Finally, when I had the vocabulary to sort of look at, less so now, but like my behavior, especially when I was in like upper middle into high school, because the focus of the discourse 
even though that word has no meaning to me anymore. Thank you, Tumblr. <laughs> when, when the focus of discourse and the focus of language is not on you and your experience, it can be so easy to just discredit everything that you experience. And I think that's something Meg deals with because nobody gives her the necessary emotional availability or language to talk about how she really feels about her dad leaving and like nobody gives her the room to talk about that because they already have made a decision about what she's like and yeah. that's something i think we experience as, as kids i think almost all kids experience that but it's also something that like i think we experience as women yeah i would say so i won't get into too many details but like i had an, uh, an academic experience recently where that happened to me where i approached a academic professional for assistance on something and they had made a decision about my capabilities and aptitudes without any real input from me and that's incredibly disheartening yeah i mean i think you see it in small ways all the time and i'm sure i do this to other people too oh i'm sure i do people have an idea or a preconception of like what you're like and then you surprise them Mm -hmm. and then they're kind of like some of them are kind of grumpy about it <laughs> yeah her principal's kind of an asshole i remember mm. that most i think a lot of middle school administrators can be assholes though i'm sure they definitely seem that way to you when you're 12 i know <laughs> no they probably do they probably are just trying their best like everyone else but they seem that way when you're 12 uh. the first experience of wanting to rise up against the man <laughs> uh I don't think I identified very much with Meg when I was her age, just because I didn't have a lot of the experience and a lot of the interests that she has. Like, she was very into math and science and things like that, and that was never my area of expertise. It still isn't. <laughs> Spoiler alert. <laughs> the idea of the emotional isolation that she has really got to me on this mm -hmm. reading, and how even Charles Wallace who can literally see her emotions and can, like, read people, even he at some point can't really understand, and at the, e at the end of it cannot help her. Like, because that's a big thing at the end of the book, like, the last, the third act of the book, is Meg coming to terms with the fact that no one is going to do something for her. Yes, that it has to be her. Whether or not she's ready or brave or strong enough or... Whatever. Because they say, like, if, if Calvin had known Charles Wallace better, he would have been the one to go. Mm-hmm. Which I, I don't know. That seems, I don't know. I didn't like that so much. But, but because Meg knows Charles Wallace so well, it has to be her that goes. Because they have this deep sibling connection even if maybe charles wallace at four or six years old or whatever the heck he is i think he's five somewhere pre-kindergarten yeah he's not he's not started school yet even though he like understands meg i don't know if it always makes meg feel understood that's a good point and i agree with it i've never met a five-year-old who would understand me because they lack the experience to it's not their fault they're five yes I, I mean, that's a really powerful moment because Meg takes this thing on her shoulders that, you know, she has free will. She doesn't have to. She could have chosen not to. And it would have been, I think, it's not really, it's not, maybe it's not presented this way in the book, but that's just as legitimate as a choice as choosing to go. I mean, obviously, like, it's her baby brother. She's gonna go. Oh, yeah. Like, as as a sibling, I can tell you, like... Would I go to an evil planet to rescue my brother? I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. But probably. I want to think I would. But I don't actually know. But I want to think I would. That, that's the thing about the book. That's the turning point for Meg. It's her last big character development. Is that she makes this choice to go. To try and save him. Even though the chance of failure is high. She goes. I think that's one of the things the book talks about too is that you don't have to, you can be scared and still be brave. This is going to be a pull from an earlier episode, because there's that whole school of thought, and the, one of the more prevalent quotes about it is in Game of Thrones, where the only time you can't be brave is when you're afraid. Right. And 
how that fear fuels Meg instead of like how, how when, when she stops letting it hinder her and she starts letting it fuel her and kind yes. of leaning into it and being like, well, if I'm this afraid, I can't imagine how much my baby brother's feeling right now. And because because what, what happens to Charles Wallace, because Charles Wallace, essentially, in order to understand it and to understand how they have to fight it, he opens up his mind fully to the hive mind, essentially. And he is almost immediately taken over. Right. And a big thing with Charles Wallace, and I want to touch on this briefly if we can. Yes. Because there was a lot of the hero's journey in this book for me. There, there's so much talk about fault. And of course, a big thing, I'm also reading the Odyssey right now. A big thing with heroes is they always have that one big fault. And with Charles Wallace, it's pride. Yes. And how that's how he falls into it is he thinks that he will just get through and that he's stronger. And the whole time I'm like, you're five. (laughs) I understand he's an exceptional five-year-old and that he's probably like the next link of human mutation and evolution, but you're still fucking five, bro. Like... (laughs) I think so much of that, because they, they put so much faith in him, Meg's one of them, Calvin does too, even though he doesn't know him very well, is it's that hubris. Right. Which is something Meg doesn't really have. She has a lot yeah. of other faults, but she does not have hubris and pride in the way Charles Wallace does. Yeah. Prevents her from falling into that same fate. Yeah. Her, hers and her biggest fault it's her stubbornness, which I think is different than pride. Right. It's it's her. She's angry and she's stubborn and impatient. Yes. Which those I think are very different faults than pride. Yeah. I don't know. I, I grappled a lot with the character of Charles Wallace in this reading because we talked about this in the production meeting. I do find him annoying, but he's also <laughs> like a five-year-old kid. So he gets a pass. He gets to be annoying. It would almost yeah. be like less realistic if he wasn't. I don't know. I've met a lot of annoying five-year-olds in my life who are annoying through no fault of their own. They're just they're just tiny humans trying to get through. <laughs> oh, aren't we all? We are, though. That's, I feel like that sometimes. I'm just a tiny yes. human doing my best. Please. I also don't want me to be doing what I'm doing. <laughs> yeah, on the scale of the universe, I am also a tiny human. Just a less tiny human. Slightly less tiny. I don't know and i think too looking back it was important to me because i'm not a person who historically speaking i don't i do that thing where i don't get angry i get upset but meg was allowed to be angry and i appreciate that about meg i appreciate that about meg because so much of the emotions so many emotions women have and young girls especially girls meg's age who are expected to grow up quicker than boys, especially emotionally. So often those emotions are invalidated. Mm-hmm. And the fact that she's just allowed to be angry and she's allowed to be emotional was refreshing. Yeah, and that she's allowed to use that to beat the great evil. Yeah. So important, important, important message for preteen girls. Yeah, it's like, no, you shouldn't just sit down and shut up. You should use the emotions that you have because they're your emotions and you're the one that has to feel them and telling yourself not to feel them isn't isn't the answer and it's not going to help anything least of all you yes which is something we could do to stand to tell young boys too if we're being honest yeah there was a one more thing i wanted to talk about yeah because while i i don't know if madeline the angle would have intended any of this like it matters I do think this ties into the, to it being a product of the time in which it was written, which was coming into the Cold War. Mm-hmm. The idea, um, I don't remember which of the, I think it's her dad. I think it's Mr. Murray who explains how a planet can become dark um, because of the big evil in, in this book of A Wrinkle in Time. It's like alternatively called the darkness and the dark thing. And it, it can take over planets and earth is like beating back the darkness like through these great religious leaders and artists and scientists and and people like that but like beating back the darkness is like a continuous action that you have to take and you have to feel 
the way a planet becomes dark is when it succumbs to a great evil like and the thing that he says is um a planet can also become dark because of too strong a desire a desire for security the greatest evil there is and meg's like well what's wrong with wanting to be safe and her dad's like the the search for safety and and conformity ultimately leads to just panic and false choices and all this other stuff that that is ultimately the antithesis of the power of love i guess and like <laughs> love isn't is not power mhm love is not power in the traditional sense in right. in that love is not power over something else right yes and that to love is to be vulnerable and that right. and that that vulnerability and that and that risk and to sort of sit in that this actually there's a quote from the new show of queer eye that's about this hand a bible that's about how you can't have the happiness and the joy and the the genuine connection you can make with other people if you do not allow yourself to sit in that vulnerability yeah gosh vulnerability is one of the hardest things about interpersonal relationships in my experience because yes i agree with that (laughs) because it is saying i will let you hurt me i know you aren't going to mean to Mm -hmm. but i will let you do it regardless if that's what it's gonna come down to and i think that's a very scary thing and that's the thing about about love is that it's about it's about giving I don't know. Like you're giving something without expecting anything back and there are consequences for that for you personally because that is an opening in which someone could hurt you regardless of whether it's malicious or just due to a lack of feeling or carelessness, you know? Yeah. I think a lot of the time when people hurt other people like that, it is out of... And I know I, I've been, I think I've been on the receiving end and the giving end of this, certainly, is a lot of the times when people hurt people like that, it is out of a fear of being yourself hurt. Yeah. And a, and a fear of that vulnerability. I was a piece of shit when I was like 18. Like, so you don't, <laughs> you don't want to know me. But like, it was like that where I was so afraid of being... Like, for some reason, in my head, I had this idea that I was faking being a quote-unquote good, empathetic, and emotional person, and that one day, someone would find me out, and it would be the end of the world. And (laughs) that sounds so dramatic, looking back on it. But no, you have have imposter. That's imposter syndrome. Because it was my whole thing where it's, I didn't really come to the understanding that a lot of the time some people are just naturally very kind people and i'm very jealous of that but some a lot of the time acting that way is a choice and it's a decision that you have to make and i think i hadn't turned the corner on understanding that a lot of what we view as good and kind is not inherent in anyone and that it's a thing that we decide to to be yes and to do I remembered being for the longest time thinking that I have to choose to feel it, to, to to act on on things this way. Therefore, I must be a bad person because I I'm not just like this. And when you right. realize that kind of everyone feels that way sometimes, <laughs> it's it's not as big of a deal. But again, it's ha- it's not having the emotional vocabulary to talk about those kind of things. And I think especially mm-hmm. especially when a lot of those kind of emotions, the kindness, the compassion, things like that, it's not seen as optional in women. No. You're sort of, you're, you're kind of expected to be like that. Like, I don't think it's unfair to expect people to be compassionate, but like, I, I do think it is disproportionately expected of women, which can lead to people, again, to kind of go back to Megan, like how it's a big statement to let her have her negative emotions where you're supposed to just kind of push those down. Right. And I'm still kind of working my way back from feeling like I always had to be positive because that's almost as toxic as being negative all the time yeah is making yourself be positive all the time it doesn't make you feel any better 
it's just <laughs> no. again it just plays into that imposter syndrome thing it makes you feel like you're just faking your way through life and you're not you're feeling a normal human thing that everybody feels every once in a while and you just gotta let it out you just gotta yeah. let it out well i think too the book is really about that at the end right because meg it doesn't come naturally to meg to go back and go to Kamatats. i've struggled so much with that yes today but she doesn't choose she it's not a natural she doesn't automatically say well i have to go back and i have to go rescue charles wallace like her father and calvin kind of do she has to come she has to work her way through it she has to come to the conclusion that she is the only one who can go and have a chance of being successful and then she chooses to go it's not something that is automatic for her right so that's that's really i think it's somebody's not gonna fix it for you but you get to choose All right, y'all, that will wrap us up for this episode of Remedial Studies. Next time, we will be talking about What We Do in the Shadows, a vampire movie directed by Remedial Studies alum Taika Waititi and Jermaine Clement. We're very excited for that. We know that we, we're barely in the double digits and we're already doing repeats, but we don't care. It's a very important movie, I would just like to say. <laughs> it deserves to be spoken about because I have a lot of opinions. Yeah, and I hear they're doing a sequel, so maybe. Rumored. Rumored a sequel is happening. Regardless, if you like what we do here, please, 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 for the love of all that is holy... Fight the evil darkness. <laughs> and please, please, please leave us rate a review on iTunes. And review the show. Please. It's what Madeline Langle would want you to do. Uh, sure. Uh, <laughs> She's not here to defend you... herself. We could say whatever we want. I mean, she did. Okay. Anyway, in addition to that, you can also contact us at Remedial Studies on the Twitter. You can check out our blog, uh, remedialstudiespodcast.tumblr.com, and you can email us at remedialstudiespodcast at gmail.com. So if you have any ideas regarding things that you would like to hear us talk about, or if you want to complain about things, but not teenage girls. And not our voices. We talked and about that in the voices. first episode. First That's five a hard minutes. hard and fast rule. <laughs> it was the first five minutes of the first episode. We recorded it in Hannah's kitchen. I was there. We yeah, do not want to be, hear it. To be fair, no one has tried, so that's good. Please continue. Uh, we really do love and appreciate you guys. People are really great on, especially Tumblr. We must be, we must appeal more to the Tumblr demographic. But the robots on there are particularly nice. Anyway, we love you all. We're excited to be doing show number 11. And we can't wait to see you for show number 12. So until next time, good luck at becoming a human, robots. <laughs>